Hi everyone, welcome to Coaches on the Couch. I'm Rachel. And I'm Louise. And before we introduce today's conversation, just wanted to introduce the podcast for benefit of any new listeners. Coaches on the Couch was launched during lockdown to help leaders connect and share their experiences of what was obviously quite an unusual time. And although we're well beyond the end of that period now, the feedback continues to be that these discussions are helping leaders across the built environment to navigate continued uncertainty from various sources. So we've carried on making them and exploring the different sort of leadership themes via discussion with special guests. So you'll find over 50 episodes now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So please do take a look. On to today's conversation, which actually is going to be in two parts, a full virtual couch this morning, as you'll hear. So we've split this in a two-part episode. We're delighted to be joined by a group of leaders who all have some kind of sustainability leadership role in their organisations. And they include Rosie Bard of Orms, Eric Bull of Studio Egre West, Ruth Oates of Bureau 4, Laura Barron of Purcell, Stephanie Crombie of Morrow and Lorraine. We're recording during Mental Health Awareness Week and part two of the discussion, which will actually come out next week, we bring that into this discussion around sustainability. So thanks for listening. Let's jump into that conversation. Hi, everyone. How nice to see so many faces on our virtual couch and welcome. Before we get into anything else, we have to talk couches. So please, can you sum up your couch in one or two words? And I'm going to come to Laura first. The dogs. (laughs) very well done because that that paints a whole picture rosie i'm gonna say resilient um which is toddler related so similar okay okay dogs toddlers staff i had taken for a similar reason laura taken okay so dogs and taken ruth i had childproof so (laughs) (laughs) definitely a theme yeah yeah, Eric, hopefully you've got a lovely modernist, you know, kind of, no? <laughs> I, I do, but it's blue. My word is blue. And um, I, I wish I'd gone for the childproof now. <laughs> Hindsight. Hindsight's a beautiful thing. Thank you all. Yeah, amazing. By way of a quick introduction, and obviously we've got quite a big group, so we're going to try and keep each one of these to 30 seconds. But maybe each of you could introduce yourself and your company and say how sustainability is led where you are and then give us one interesting fact about sustainability at your company and let's start with Eric as we ended there last time. Hi so my name's Eric Bull and I'm an associate and uh, sustainability lead at Studio Egray West. Uh, I've been here with the company for about four years so we're a, a practice of urban designers, landscape, and architects. Uh, and we tend to operate more in the kind of early stages of, con- uh, of projects from visioning and, and concept uh, pieces. I think the interesting element of that from our standpoint is that sustainability, I suppose, is less something that is delivered for us and more something that is embedded that we try to, to fold into projects at the earliest stages rather than yeah. seeing them kind of, yeah finished at the tail end great thanks eric uh laura 
Hi, my name is Laura. I am Head of Sustainability at Purcell, who are a team of architects, heritage consultants, master planners and building surveyors. I'm full-time Head of Sustainability and uh, very much responsible for leading our processes around sustainability at a strategic level. But Purcell have got 14 offices across five regions, so I've got a network of very enthusiastic colleagues who all represent different facets of the business and locations that we work on and help kind of drive sustainability at a local level um, because obviously I can't be everywhere and it should be a conversation that's happening with everybody um, and I guess interesting fact Purcell is 75 years old and we've been specializing in the restoration conservation and adaptive reuse of our historic built environment for obviously a number of decades and so the kind of the shift in the industry towards retrofit first and reusing buildings is very much aligned with what we've been trying to do um for a while yeah great so very different focus okay great ruth hi i'm ruth oates i'm a project director at bureau four um we're a firm that specializes in project management we believe that as, as project managers, as much as we don't have the technical know-how that all the consultants uh, that work on our teams have, that we're in quite a unique position to really help our clients on their journey, their sustainability journey. And I head up the, the Net Zero Carbon Group within Bureau 4. And um, our fact and what we're working on is building a, a toolkit um, for all our project managers to help uh, their clients on their journey so that we're as clued up as we can be on this journey as, as part of this jigsaw puzzle that we fit into in the built environment. Lovely. Steph. Hello, everyone. So nice to see you all. So I'm Steph. I'm an architect by training and I work at 30-person practice called Morrow and Lorraine Architects. So as part of that role, I lead on sustainability um, and we do things like undertake the sustainability champion role on projects, doing things like whole life cycle carbon assessment, client engagement, internal training, knowledge sharing, in-house certifications such as 14001, and then project certifications as well. And so my fun fact is that we don't just work on sustainability on our projects, but we also collaborate with a number of other partners. So, for example, at the moment, we're working with some insurance brokers so they can better understand how and reduce the embodied carbon of their insurance claims and reinstate buildings that have been damaged by fires or floods with much lower carbon alternatives rather than just replicating what was there already. Oh, interesting. Thank you. And Rosie? Hi, I'm Rosie. I'm an architect and associate at Orms, which is an architectural practice of around 60 employees in central London. I've been at the practice for 11 years and I've been chairing our sustainability group for about six years. And I now co-lead our kind of sustainability efforts uh, along with my colleague, Rachel. I think maybe interesting fact is our goal was always really to empower the office with the knowledge for us all to be sustainability advocates so that there was no need for a specific sustainability group or role within the practice. But obviously things are moving so fast that it's still necessary. And I guess we were maybe early adopters of bringing the whole life carbon analysis in-house. And so what we're spending a lot of time doing at the moment is helping with other industry groups in sharing that knowledge with the Net Zero Building Standard and Letty and other groups like that. Great. Well, I mean, what must immediately strike anybody who's listening to this is the wealth of experience in the room and not just experience about sustainability, but different experiences of leading this within lots of different sized and focused practices. So I think that that's the fuel for a very interesting discussion. And I thought it would be an interesting place to start. I mean, Laura, don't, not to put you on the spot, but because we know where you came from and where you are now. 
so you were previously with a much smaller practice where I know and a very forward thinking smaller practice where you first picked up the sustainability man sort of mantle there and Rosie of course you've done that at Orms and I'm sure all of you have to some extent kind of this has been something that's been added to your role or you've been moved off other things and onto that and I wondered whether yeah starting with Laurie you could just say how did you get started what kind of resources were you given what was the remit how did you kind of scope out what the role was going to be that's a really good question yeah so pre my previous life I was working at Pitman Tozer Architects who were a much smaller organization but brilliant team of architects and I was there for eight years which I loved but made a very conscious decision to kind of try and move into driving sustainability within the practice and joined groups like ACAN and local kind of architects declare chapters and things like that and went to conferences and talks and stuff and just kind of met loads of fascinating interesting people that some of whom were doing this as a full-time role um, and I realized that that was really something that I wanted to do to be talking about and thinking about and being paid to do that um, as a full-time role and so I, I kind of actively sought out companies that were looking for heads of sustainability roles um, that were full-time and so this one came up uh, there was a few um, but this one specifically because of uh, I think it was interesting to me because of the type of work and the type of projects are kind of quite mind-blowing sometimes and because it was a new role um, it didn't exist previously. I've very much been allowed to kind of shape it into what I'm passionate about and what I think will work. And so there were some things that I'd done at Pitman Tozer previously, which I could kind of build on, some things that I'd learned from talking to other people doing similar roles that I could sort of steal and <laughs> implement myself. Um, but very much kind of building on the the um, culture that already existed and obviously quite an an old organization that had a lot of embedded processes and things uh, to have to to join with such a new role. It was a really exciting challenge. Um, and I've been there a year now, so quite pleased with what I've achieved so far, but I've still got lots of work to do. So that those early days when you sort of you, you sort of for want of a better expression, sort of set your cap at the sustainability, you knew that it was something that needed to be needed to be done and you thought that you were the person to do it was that something that happened with other people here Steph so I have been at Moorhead Range for about just over seven and a half years um so I didn't start in the sustainability world at all so I came at it from a completely different um way to Laura and I think everybody here probably has on their own on their own route map uh, just if you think about how quickly sustainability has kind of come to the forefront in the last five years. I read the IPCC report in 2018 and then kind of had like a massive meltdown um, about where we were going and what we were doing and the architecture profession in general. And then I kind of picked myself back up again, if you like, and did a kind of huge presentation to my directors and the practice more broadly saying, you know, just kind of sharing knowledge. And like a kind of general theme for me with sustainability is the more that you share um, the better you feel and the more kind of action you can kind of implement. I did all of that and then from that kind of form that sustainability role and I've kind of oscillated between thinking I can do this uh, you know I, I, I'm learning loads I can definitely kind of I'm in control and I know exactly what I'm doing to absolutely kind of not knowing what I'm doing and um, feeling very inadequate and underqualified and I think kind of that often oscillation comes with uh, the amount of information that's out there at the moment you know the great work that loads of other people are doing the huge gaps that still exist so I've you know gone from trying to think um, I'm going to be trying to be an expert in everything thinking okay no, I can't do that I'm just going to be an expert in one thing to becoming much more comfortable with 
you know, knowing a little about, bit about lots of things and then applying what's really relevant to the work that we're doing and kind of pushing things forward, things forward that way. So we're part of a smaller practice. Um, so we're 30 people and that means that um, we have to be quite selective about where we implement the sustainability moves. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of focus on the, the types of projects we're working on. So for example, we're looking at CLT. Um, it's about training up into how we can learn more, know more about CLT, implement that on that on our jobs, talk to other people, understand where the pitfalls they've found with CLT are and how we can overcome them and try and be always on the front foot. So that's a very different, and, and I guess more like, because we haven't got the, I'd love to have loads of people that could help me, um, but because we haven't got that, it's quite as much um, being really precise and prioritising the actual kind of moves that we can have on the projects that we're doing at that particular time. Yeah. So a lot around there, just a, a lot around impact, prioritisation and impact. So understanding where you can have that impact because of the positioning of Mara and Lorraine and then prioritising within the plethora of and velocity of what's actually happening out there in terms of information, which exactly. must be, yeah, must be a huge challenge. Uh, do others have, maybe Rosie Ruth or Eric, have sort of pointers on coping with that speed and volume well I don't I don't know if I can say how we cope with the speed and volume but I guess uh, as project managers I, I do feel sometimes we're a bit overwhelmed by all the information that is there and knowing that um, we somehow need to be across all of it to be able to advise on our uh, to our clients you know how best to proceed and, and so sometimes we do feel a bit lost and overwhelmed and sometimes you do feel like oh actually I've got this so you get your head around something and there's something else pops up somewhere else that you need to suddenly be across so we're always looking uh, for ways of distilling all of that information that's out there into sort of useful applicable sort of guidance notes if you like that we we can all use and uh, apply so that's I know I come from it from a slightly different background. I mean, I, I'm an engineer by training. And so part of my sort of civil structural engineer background, I'm very passionate about retrofit and reuse of buildings. And that's kind of how I, that's my sustainability journey and why I was very keen on it and, and working on redeveloping existing buildings. But I still find there's so much information out there. Distilling it down into something we can use on an everyday basis is, yeah. is one of our biggest challenges within Bureau 4 as project managers. That's yeah. exhausting. And I guess, I guess you know, Rosie or, or Eric, that kind of that sense of what you need to communicate to others within your practice in order to advise your clients. It's similar way to Ruth, but, you know, from, from an architectural point of view, it sounds really overwhelming, the amount of information you must have to take in. I, I think um, it is, you know, sustainability is such a vast topic and it means very different things to different people and it can be very different on different scales of project, different types of client. So one of the things that really helped us was we developed a, a toolkit for reviewing our projects in-house and that was based around the RBA Sustainable Outcomes and it breaks sustainability down into kind of eight key topics that we could focus on. So when we were reviewing each project, we could really understand where, what was relevant to each project where we can make the maximum impact and then embed research into those topics into projects and what we call our deep assignments on on each of our projects to understand how we can kind of drive innovation and push things forwards within that framework. And this might sound a bit odd but I mean 
have you do you get met with resist with resistance are there sometimes architects within the practice who say who don't literally say but sort of put up a talk to the hand type attitude that they have their idea about a project and and actually to take sustainability too much into consideration might kind of they want to hold rigidly to a particular position does that make sense does that happen or is I don't think it's necessarily resistance you know sometimes it's definitely what an extra thing that you need to think about when you're already super busy trying to run a project but I think that's what's really exciting about the role is being able to go in and talk to every team in the office and help everybody to find a way forward that is still gets the design that they want but also includes you know kind of best practice sustainability goals as well you I guess in in our industry we're as architects, designers, we're sort of service providers. So the client tends to tends to have their own aims and objectives for the project. And it's kind of easy as the service provider to sort of adopt those aims and objectives for yourself. But I think, you know, it's important that you sort of look beyond that uh, and think about what you are trying to provide for them, which is the kind of optimal solution that they want and sometimes that they don't realize that they that they need so it's it's the it is the challenge of trying to communicate back to your client that whether or not they realize they want it they actually do yeah can you give us any sort of pointers around that eric because that's quite an interesting point isn't it that communication with clients and the management of client expectations yeah, well, there's a big there's a diff, big difference between the cost of some something and the value of something. You know, the cost is something that you have to pay out for it. Uh, the value of it is what you have then left over as an asset. And uh, you know, sometimes paying a little more upfront and having something that is uh, obviously uh, a better asset to to move with in the forward in, in looking into the future. That's something that you know everyone can get behind as a concept. And it's just a matter of moving past that that capital cost, which unfortunately uh, determines a lot of the decisions that that frustrate us through, through this kind of role. Yeah. So some logic and some facts around the sort of um, the cost and value of some of these interventions. Uh, anybody else, anything around that? Well, I think uh, some of what Eric's saying there is sort of intimating that sometimes we need to challenge our clients on on their brief and their objectives. And I think um, part of this journey with sustainability is sort of empowering us as individuals to do the right thing. And, you know, sometimes if a, a client might have set a brief that you, you might want to question and query and see if you can get uh, an improvement and still deliver the value and still, you know, meet the project objectives, but in a slightly different way. So I, I think there's an element of empowerment here as well to sort of feel that you have enough knowledge and and sort of the right to question where if you feel something could be better or isn't done right. Um, that's just something personally I'm, I'm sort of learning that I feel that, you know, as part of my role as a professional to do better in this world and in this environment is to to challenge these things and, and not just accept what a client says they want. Yeah, I mean, I, I think more and more, um, hopefully businesses, including developers, are now thinking not just about um, people, but also planet. And um, it's become more of the discourse that we have. I'm not being terribly optimistic but I think it has become more of the discourse that we have what what can we do about about the planet and how can what we do contribute to 
making things better or at least not making things any worse come on laura yeah i think we should be optimistic um <laughs> definitely but yeah i would echo what eric and ruth have just said and i think no very very few businesses hopefully are going to turn around and say they're taking the business decision to not care about climate change um and so it's really kind of as Rosie said before, sustainability means lots of different things to different people. So I find one of the best starting conversations is just to try and understand what their priorities are and understanding all the different facets of sustainability. And some of it might be more human focused than it is kind of carbon focused. And it's just trying to understand what 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 buttons you can press to kind of um, engage different people and how you get them on board at those really really early stages is really important yeah I was uh, just going to say exactly what Laura said um, but less elephant um, <laughs> no I was going to just add to that because I completely agree I think um, design narratives are really important and I found that such a useful tool for getting people on board so if you're kind of telling a story about why your building is the way that it is then and you're kind of tying that into sustainability that's absolutely I think Eric mentioned that it's like embedded it's integral that that design narrative is part of how we've how we've developed this building and you cannot this building cannot exist without those design narratives and sustainability is part of that then it becomes something that everybody buys into they will buy into it really early and it becomes kind of it's not like a nice to have you can't take it away and pulling that design narrative as Laura just mentioned from you know either kind of a client's ethos or portfolio as it's existing or whether it's like a, I don't know uh, thinking about longevity and thinking about the future or where it's thinking about the kind of their targets in relation to circularity or health and well-being, you know, you can pull that design narrative from lots of places and kind of end up where you want to be and where the project should be in terms of its kind of sustainable positivity, but but do it in such a way that you're like describing that added value through um, the kind of, yeah, the kind of concept of storytelling. So you're adding some of the sort of the emotional and the heartfelt things to that logic and the facts in this communication and influence yeah and I think as architects that's like our job in some ways is to kind of give like cultural heritage and cultural richness and sustainable you know meaning and leadership to projects that we're working on and I also said there I think that you know part of it is understanding and making sure that you understand the client and what the client has said in the past and what the client is saying now and so how you can help the client meet what they've set as being their standards or their values um, because most clients will say things publicly so you're almost saying yeah we can help you we can help you meet that meet yeah that exactly or whatever yeah yeah so it's exactly what Ruth is saying you know they've got like loads of people want to do the right thing they want to be sustainable and they've got all of these goals but how we implement them is actually really challenging um, particularly within the current time budget resource constraints um, and, and risk as well with you know it's the whole kettle of fish so um you know it's our job to help them implement these kind of amazing ambitions that they set themselves i, I like the um the sort of storyline analogy there steph i think um it, re it really really helps underpin everything doesn't it and you you need to get to know your client and understand what makes them tick and and ultimately why why they're doing all this stuff and what what their priorities and objectives are and yeah getting to grips with that with then a narrative that flows through the project and everyone can follow is is really key yeah. So we're going to pause the conversation there and just sort of to round up part one of this conversation, just say a little bit more about different influencing strategies, uh, which is starting to sort of come into that conversation as we were coming to the end there. And, you know, influences, it's one of those words that 
has some real negative connotations, I think, these days. It seems to be tied up with manipulation or conjures up images of influencers on TikTok or whichever other social media platform. Um, however, influence, you know, the voicing of your ideas, inspiring others and having a positive impact is so important to leaders. It's something that we talk about frequently with leaders on step up programs and in one to one coaching. You know, I mean, Google is your best friend on influencing strategies or get a coach. But I'm just going to briefly introduce a simple model around influence. So we're going to talk about push versus pull and logic versus emotion. And if you're like me and you quite like a neat two by two matrix, you'll find that this forms one. So firstly, push versus pull. So this is whether you are going to put forward your argument in an assertive way. So push that forward or whether you aim to be less direct, you know, explaining the downside of the current position and creating openness to that new proposal. So pull then either of those push or pull options can be combined with logic. You know, do you present the facts with a logical rationale or is it more appropriate to appeal to people's emotions? So this could be setting out a really appealing vision, you know, in a sort of I have a dream type way. And the choice between those four approaches will depend on the people you're working with, the situation and the case that you've developed. But it's worth considering which one or which ones, as there might be more than one option, is actually going to be most effective in that particular case. So that's it for part one of this episode. If you want to know more about those four different strategies, Google Baker, because it was Baker who came up with the, that particular model. That's it for part one. Tune in next week for part two of the conversation. And thanks so much for listening. <laughs>